0: Thanks for listening to The Vine's podcast. The Vine is a church in Austin, Texas with a simple goal of following Jesus together. And we hope this message helps you in doing just that. Our scripture reading today is from the book of Luke, chapter 10, verses 38 through 42. As Jesus and his disciples were on their way, he came to a village where a woman named Martha opened her home to him. She had a sister called Mary who sat at the Lord's feet listening to what he said So I wanna begin today by having a little history lesson on the experience of time, our relationship with time. Uh, Many historians say that our relationship with time took a turn in 1370, that year was the first time that a public clock was displayed. This took place in Cologne, Germany, and think about this: the very first time where there was a public clock that everyone could look at and follow. And if you know German culture, they like they're kind of type A. They like knowing they're on time together. And this, think about this: this is the first time uh, where uh, time was not broad. It wasn't you know it wasn't just a general. That it was actually set like this. Before that, time was non mechanicals, more natural, more bendable. Many of us still live. With time like that, you know, like we say, you know, give her minus five minutes, aka vine time, right? Especially on Sunday mornings. But before this moment, the rhythm of days were not dictated by dials or by a watch or push notifications or alerts on our phone. The rhythm of life was set by the sun, set by lightness and darkness, set by the seasons, a time for harvesting, a time for sowing. Um... As John Mark Comer wrote in his book, uh, The Ruthless Elimination of Hurry, sorry, we have a time right there. Someone someone just found out there's a time for that too. Uh, John Mark Comer, he wrote in his book, the clock changed all that. It created artificial time. We stopped listening to our bodies and started rising when our alarms droned their oppressive siren. Not when our bodies were done resting. We became more efficient, yes, but also more machines less human being. Then, in 1879, Thomas Edison took this evolution to the next level when he invented his light bulb. This made it much easier for us to uh, declare independence from the sun and the natural rhythms that we have in this world. Did you know that before Edison, the average person slept 11 hours a day? 11 hours a day. Can I get an amen for that? Now, the average American sleeps around seven hours a day. It's a bit different. In 1967, experts on time management grew more and more concerned. They delivered a report to the U.S. Senate. These experts had this belief that the speed of technology, satellites, and robotics would present a huge problem for America further down the road. Why? The workplace would have an issue. The American workplace would have an issue. The problem would be this. We would have too much free time. (laughs) We'd have too much free time, too much leisure, because all of these these mechanics, all this industry would just free us up. And so this is what they concluded. They concluded, this was again 1967, they made this report, they said this. Their thought was that by 1985, people might have to choose between working 22 hours a week or 27 weeks a year or retiring at 38. How are we doing? How are we doing, guys? What are, what are we doing with all of these added hours to our day? When, by not sleeping and not, not resting by all of our time-saving gadgets and hacks that we have. What are we doing with all these added all these added hours. Well, we're trying to be more productive. We're more in a hurry. We're more frantic. It's an interesting thing, we're spending more time babysitting our technology. That's what we're doing with our hours. Psychologists and mental health professionals have actually looked at this and seen that our, the pace by which we're running that's not slowing down, that's actually hurrying up, is taking a social toll on us, is taking a real toll on us as a society. And they coined a phrase to talk about the epidemic that we're living in. They call it hurry sickness. We live with a sense of hurry sickness. Many of these doctors consider it a disease. Here are a couple definitions of what hurry sickness is. Hurry sickness is a behavior patterned a behavior pattern characterized by continual rushing and anxiousness. Another one defined it by a malaise in which a person feels chronically short of time and so tends to perform every task faster, faster and to get flustered when encountering any kind of delay. This is what hurry sickness looks like. The doctor who coined this phrase, Friedman, did so as he saw an influx of people who had Higher risk for cardiovascular damage and trauma. Embrace yourself. He did this in the 1950s. Do you think we've slowed down? Do you think the chronic pace has slowed down, the anxiety? you think our cardiovascular systems are improving? (laughs) I wonder how many of us might diagnose ourselves with a problem of hurry sickness. Let's do what we'd love to do. Let's self-diagnose, right? (laughs) What can go wrong with that? So here are 10 symptoms of hurry sickness. They are irritability. So you're surprised by how easily you find yourself getting mad, frustrated, or annoyed. Hypersensitivity. Minor things quickly escalate to major emotional events. It might show itself as anger, nitpickiness, anxiety, or depression. Restlessness. When you try to slow down and rest, you can't. Stopping actually produces more anxiety. Workaholism. You find yourself def- defaulting to work and production, your drug of choice is accumulation and accomplishment. Emotional numbness. You don't have the capacity to feel others' pain, to, to experience empathy and sympathy and compassion. They don't come as natural as you would think. Out of order priorities. You know that you're giving your time and attention to that which doesn't ultimately matter, but there's this constant tyranny of the urgent, and you find yourself living reactively life, not proactively. The seventh one is the lack of care for your body, sleep, exercise, healthy eating, or afterthoughts. Number eight, escapist behavior. When you are run down, you actually turn to distractions that often create negative cycles that are really hard to break. Number nine, negligence of spiritual disciplines. As life picks up, that which cares for your soul loses its importance. And then number 10, isolation. You feel disconnected from God and from others. In the pace of life, you feel a sense of division from others and the relationships that you have. Your life becomes wrapped around your own goals and priorities and you lose the importance of relationship. Okay, so let's just sit with this list here and look at it and consider which of these 10 mark your life. Which of these 10 mark your life? And how are you experiencing hurry sickness in your days? So I would think we could easily say this type of living is not only inhumane, not only toxic for our souls, but as followers of Jesus, we could say this is contrary to the way of Jesus. A life of hurry and a life of love are incompatible. This is perhaps why Paul, when he just just defined and described what love was, it begins by love is patient. It begins there. It begins with time and space and presence. The Trappist monk and poet Thomas Merton, he arrived at this conclusion. He said the rush and pressure of modern life is a pervasive form of contemporary violence. So let's sit with that word violence for a second. The rush that we are living with, the pressure of hurry does violence. It does violence in our own souls. It does violence uh, in how we relate to other people, how we treat people. People either become a nuisance that holds me back from getting the thing I want done, or they become just another tool to use so that I can accomplish my goals. It damages the treatments of others and ourselves and our relationship with God, and we might wonder where will this lead us where will hurry sickness lead us i think the pastor and author john ortberg he was dead on when he said this he said for many of us the great danger is not that we will renounce our faith it's not like we'll like i'm no longer a follower of jesus i no longer believe in christ the greater danger is this that we become so distracted and rushed and preoccupied that we will settle for a mediocre version of it We will just skim our lives instead of actually living them. We're just skimming our lives away day at a time, not fully awake, not fully alive, not fully present, just hurried, frantic, checking off all the boxes that really don't matter. (laughs) And yet, there's something deeper to us. Going back to the imagery of the iceberg that we talked about last week, hurriness, like the hurry sickness that we live in, it pushes us to the surface, above the surface of our life. When the deeper part of us, the 90% of us that, that we live with, that we are, that we embody, that is below the surface, that we never acknowledge or live into or press into. The pace and the rhythm of the life that we live never allows us to go deeper into the surface of our being to experience the transformation that Jesus longs for us to have. We can't go deeper if we continue to run at the pace that we do. We won't experience the soul care unless we break free from the hurry of our lives. I love this word picture that Parker Palmer used for the soul. As we are talking about soul care, many of us, we, we need to begin by just saying, like, I don't know if I have ever lived with an awareness of the soul. I don't even know what that means. I love word pictures in Parker Palmer. He gave one that the soul is like a wild animal. If we want to learn how to care for our soul, we must learn to begin by befriending the soul. And we can't do that in our hurried life. This is what he said. This word picture of the soul is like a wild animal. The soul is like a wild animal. Tough resilient, savvy, self-sufficient, and yet exceedingly shy. If we want to see a wild animal, the last thing we should do is go crashing through the woods, shouting for the creature to come out. But if we are willing to walk quietly into the woods and sit silently for an hour or two at the base of a tree, the creature we are waiting for may well emerge, and out of the corner of an eye we will catch a glimpse of the precious wildness we seek. I think many of us go crashing through the woods of this world and either we're doing so frantically or we're doing it like this, you know. (laughs) And meanwhile, we're missing this relationship with the soul. And something I would add to uh, Palmer's description is if you really want to befriend the soul, not only do you do that once, but you do it day by day by day. And all of a sudden, that wild animal might actually run up to you after a while. We will always remain above the surface, detached from the soul, if we are not willing to have a slowed-down spiritual life. slow down spiritual life. There is a solution for this. There is a solution. The solution for the damage that we're collectively feeling is not more time. It's not another life a time-saving hack. It's not another efficiency guru that we can follow. We actually believe that following the 2,000-year-old teaching from this Palestinian Jew named Jesus is the surest way to discover the good life and the surest way to find our souls again. Jesus came not only to deliver us from sin and death, but he also came to show us how to live well, how to be a soul-filled person. Our Savior came to teach us what it meant to live in this world without hurry, to find and discover stillness and quiet. If anyone would have been tempted to run at a frantic pace, don't you think it would have been Jesus? (laughs) The Savior of the world only here 33 years to make the impact that we would expect for all of time, only here for 33 years. And how did Jesus spend his years? 30 of them, we don't know. What a waste, right? Like how inefficient of God <laughs> to spend 30 years, Not we don't even know what he did. And for those three public years, how did Jesus use his time? He didn't use his time with abundant efficiency. He wasn't sent over here to this, these three years to be productive and to fight against time. Instead, we should see that Jesus was known to be a man of solitude, of stillness. This, would be, this is an obvious comment, but guys, I would be an awful savior. Like, if I was the savior of the world, it would not have been good, because I would have felt the weight of every moment. Maybe just one more sermon, maybe just one more healing, maybe just one more miracle at this wedding party. I would have relished at the praise of people and it would have driven me to work even harder and more, more ragged, I would have lived my life. And I would have felt this pressure to be all things to all people at all times. Yet, if you read the gospel, Jesus lived at this unhurried pace. He frequently would sneak off by himself just to be with his father. He would just go missing. People wouldn't know where he was, and he, he was not tempted to be all things, to all people in all places. Instead, he had this sense of slowness, the sense of certitude of who he was. And furthermore, he lived his life interrupt, with being in, in, interruptible, which is so hard for me. So much of Jesus' ministry, if you were to read through the Gospels, is the ministry of interruptions. It's as he was going, someone would come. And for me, it's really hard for me to set aside my agenda, my my to-do list, my task. But it seems like Jesus, he had this grace of being interruptible. He lived at an unhurried pace. This is what Jesus attempted to teach his disciples. As we heard read earlier in Luke 10, the Bible tells us time and time again how Jesus taught us his disciples what it meant to be present with people, including this moment between uh, Mary, Martha, and Lazarus. At a time where hospitality was of the greatest importance, Jesus was here a special guest at a home. But while Jesus was sitting there, this sibling conflict broke out. And what was the issue? Well, primarily there is Mary sitting at Jesus' feet, And Martha, making everything happen. Martha was distracted by all the preparations that had to be made. So she came to him and asked, Lord, don't you care that my sister has left me to do all the work by myself? Tell her to help me. Martha, Martha, the Lord answered, you are worried and upset about many things, but few things are needed. Or indeed, only one. Mary has chosen what is better, and it will not be taken from her. So let's be honest for a second. Who's annoyed by this story? Like especially the Martha Martha. It's just like such a disappointing, you know, this is how I read it. And it's okay. Like I, I like I, I, I'm annoyed at the story because someone needs to take care of the details, right? How was a guest honored without anything being prepared? It's not everyone can just sit at Jesus' feet. Like all the type A-driven people, can you say amen? Like someone has to get things done. But Jesus was looking for something else to honor him. Martha thought that the one thing that was needed to honor Jesus would to be a servant, to serve him, to be a person of action. But Jesus is saying that he is honored by something else. And Mary chose what was better, to sit at Jesus' feet, just so you know, this is not the posture of a subservient woman sitting at his feet. This is actually a posture of a disciple. The disciples would sit at their rabbi's feet, and so this is not like a gendered thing. It's actually uh, a, a posture of that she was a disciple like the other men who were following Jesus, wanting to, to sit at the teacher's feet. Mary wanted to be with Jesus and to learn from him, and that's the one thing that was important to her. Do we think that being with Jesus in learning from Jesus is more important than production or even serving Jesus? Even if you do believe that, is your lifestyle displaying that, conveying that message? That's not what my life usually says. Many followers of Jesus, including myself, need to remember that God is not impressed by the frantic pace of our life, God is not impressed by our frantic service or exhaustion. Feeling burned out is not a badge of honor in Jesus' kingdom. Jesus says that something else is needed. I truly believe that Jesus would want to teach our generation this lesson. Why? Because we live in a Martha world that values productivity over presence, doing over being, It values the top 10% of the iceberg and disregards the rest of the 99% under the surface. It's not that our service is unimportant, but it's not as important as being with Jesus, being with Jesus in a posture of being unhurried and undistracted in this world. If we want to discover true soul care, especially in this season of Lent, if we want to discover true soul care, we must be willing to follow Jesus with the rhythms and the pace of our life. It's no wonder to me that I find that so many of us are drawn to these words from Matthew 11. Come to me, all who are weary and burdened. This is Jesus speaking. And I will give you rest. And Jesus says, take my yoke upon you, And learn from me, for I am gentle and humble in heart, and you will find rest for your souls. For my yoke is easy and my burden is light. For the exhausted and tired world that we are living in, there is good news. Jesus makes this invitation for us to come to him. All of us who are weary, all of us who are fatigued, all of us who are burdened, to come to Jesus, to step out of the pace and step off the treadmill of this world to receive rest. But then Jesus says something surprising. He offers a gift. He says this, take my yoke upon you. What in the world is this yoke? Um, a yoke is something that you would put on livestock to help them plow a field. So for many of us who are tired and, and weary, that seems like the last thing we want, right? To put, have a yoke be put on us. This was, but for that day, uh, when someone would follow a rabbi, a teacher, they would do so and they would put on their yoke. That means like however they taught, however, whatever it looked like to be faithful to God, that's what their yoke was. And Jesus is saying that I have a yoke for you. And it's gentle, it's easy, it's going to return life to your soul. This yoke will actually lead you to rest. I love what biblical scholar Dale Bruner, he said, he wrote this. A yoke is a work instrument. That's when Jesus offers a yoke, he offers what we might think tired workers need least. They need a mattress or a vacation, not a yoke. But Jesus realizes the most restful gift he can give the tired is a new way to carry life a fresh way to bear responsibilities. Realism sees that a life, a succession of burdens, which is like our life, is <laughs> a succession of burdens. We can't, we cannot get away from them. Thus, instead of offering an escape, Jesus offers equipment. Jesus means his yoke will develop in us a balance and a way of carrying life that will give more rest than the way we have been living. We need to put on the kind yoke of Jesus, not so that Jesus can drive us harder, but so that we can follow Jesus at Jesus' pace, going to where Jesus wants to send us, to lead us to. Jesus, his yoke is giving us a different way of living so that we can go when it's time to go. And perhaps for many of us, Jesus can actually say, that's enough for today. now, Now it's time to rest. Many of us long to experience a life of peace, deep abiding joy that Jesus promised in his his word. But many of us struggle to follow Jesus' lifestyle. If you want to experience the promise of Jesus, we have to follow his lifestyle, to put on his yoke. This makes me think of the psalmist's words in Psalm 23. The Lord is my shepherd. I lack nothing. He makes me lie down in green pastures. He leads me beside quiet waters. He refreshes my soul. This is what happens when we put on the yoke of Jesus. He might make us lie down. He might lead us by quiet waters, and he might refresh our soul. When we call Jesus our Savior, that means he's also the shepherd of our life. We get to follow the one who promises to restore us. And the problem for many Christ followers, including myself, is we put on the Christian yoke on top of all the other yokes of this world. <laughs> like, that's our problem. We just add more to our to-do list. So on top of everything else we have to do now, i got to serve, I don't need to be on a small group, I have to do a quiet time, I have to do all these other things, rather than taking a moment and taking off all of the yokes of this world to put on the primary yoke of our life, which is... Following Jesus. This means that we have to take off the yoke of the American dream, the yoke of upward mobility, the yoke of the belief that we're going to find happiness in materialism. We have to take all of that off if we want to truly experience what Jesus wants to shepherd us to. And one of the practices that Jesus would include on his yoke is what we're exploring this week. Uh, through our series. This week, we're talking about finding Jesus in a slower pace, and more importantly than that, what that pace that culminates in the practice of Sabbath. I began this sermon talking about a little history of time, but the real history of time begins all the way back in Genesis. In Genesis, we see God forming creation, and day by day, he's forming creation in this culmination, this crescendo of goodness that God was was making. And then on day six, God breathes life into humanity. And what happens right after that day? What happens on day seven? Well, on day seven, this takes place. This is Genesis chapter two. By the seventh day, God had finished the work he had been doing. So on the seventh day, God rested from all God's work. Then God blessed the seventh day and made it holy because on it he rested from all the work of creating that he had done. The very first time that we find the word holy in all of scripture, the very first time we find the word holy is here, right here, that God made the seventh day holy. I find it really interesting and important that the first holy thing in all creation was not a place, not like a a temple or location, it wasn't a person, but it was a day it was a rhythm that's set apart and called holy and good. This is the pattern for how life exists, that on this day, God blessed the Sabbath and rested on it. And I also think it's important to notice that the simple truth, that if humanity was created on day six, and on day seventh was a Sabbath, a day of rest, the first day of humanity's exi- existence The first day that humanity ever had was a day of rest with God. That's where our story begins. Our story begins with connection with God, with being with God, with resting alongside God. This is contrary to what many of us think when it comes to our idea of Sabbath, is that our Sabbath is something that we have to earn, something that we have to achieve, rather than something that initiates our very being. It starts with resting with God. That means that the Sabbath is not a day that we have achieved to have like a day off. This is what Eugene Peterson calls a bastard Sabbath, a little racy right there, but a bastard Sabbath is a day that's disconnected from the Father. It's a day where we unplug for work, but it's not about reconnection. And what we find is that our story begins by being with God, and all of life comes out of that. We don't work for the Sabbath, we work from the Sabbath. So what does that look like? What do we do on the Sabbath? I'm just curious here, who here practices Sabbath, like a a, a weekly day of rest? Who practices like a, part, a portion of a Sabbath? Like you have some sort of rhythm where there's rest? Okay, it's super hard for us to do. And as we will find in our journals, some of our encouragement is to begin small. Begin with a small opportunity for a rest. But what do we do on the Sabbath? Sabbath is a day where first we stop. Whatever is depleting our days, whatever's depleting our souls is set aside. Whatever's driving our pace is silenced for a moment, silenced for a day. And we remember the rest of the iceberg underneath the Sabbath. The Sabbath is a day of soul care. That's the primary purpose of the Sabbath. It is a day of soul care. Whatever brings you back to life, that is your agenda for the day. And so because of that, it's, I don't think that anyone should dictate what Sabbath should look like for each of us. Because each of us are different. There's different things that bring us back to life. So for me personally, I try to silence the noise and the busyness as much as I can. That means that on Friday, Friday's my Sabbath, I'm not thinking about a sermon, I'm not taking meetings, I'm not checking my email, I silence, I silence the things that do distract me, so that means on Friday I'm not on social media that day because it it's becomes reflexive for me uh, to be on social media. And I prioritize that which brings me back to life. So on Fridays I try to take walks and pray. I work in the yard, not because it, I consider it work, but guys, it brings me joy to get my hands dirty. Like, I know some of you have been talking to me, it's aeration season, y'all. It's a good time to be alive. I love working in the yard and seeing, just, uh, just working yard and, and, and getting my hands dirty. So that's what I, one of the things I do on, on the Sabbath. Uh, on the Sabbath, I'm also highly interruptible with my kids because I feel like most of my week I, I'm always, hey, just give me a moment, give me a second. Uh, on the Sabbath, I'm highly interruptible. Ruth Haley Barton, she's a spiritual director, she said, my lap is open for the kids to sit on at any time on the Sabbath. I want my kids to remember that the Sabbath is, was the day that my dad was the most present. That's what I hope the legacy of the Sabbath would be. So right now that means for my, our kids, playing a lot of Uno, kicking the soccer ball around, unleashing the tickle monster, and putting together Legos with Jack. It sounds great, right? This idea of reconnection and doing that. I also like being with friends. I like yard games. I like walking to dinner on Sabbath. The importance of sharing meals and sharing joy with people who bring me back to life. It sounds great, but to be honest, the Sabbath is also really, really hard for me. I find myself very restless and anxious, I find myself reflexively opening up my phone and unlocking it and going to Instagram. You ask me what I'm looking for? I don't know. I just got bored for a split second, right? (laughs) And so I have to turn that off and I have to return to the idea of like today, I'm going to be here. I know this discomfort for me that I have on the Sabbath where I'm not producing, I'm not not checking the box, Um, I know this anxiety that I'm feeling is a sure sign that I need to step off off that treadmill. I need to take off the yoke of this world. That discomfort is a sure sign that I'm not following Jesus in the ways that I know I should. A slowed down spirituality and the practice of Sabbath is the essential part for our generation of what it means to discover soul care. I imagine Jesus full of compassion, full of mercy, looking at people like me and you and asking the question, is anyone tired? Does anyone feel just depleted in life? Is anyone just tired of feeling constantly distracted? Come to me. I I can give you rest. I can show you a different way of living. I I I can shepherd you to life again. I can recover your souls. I want to leave you with this promise, this invitation from Jesus, again that we found in Matthew's words. This time I wanna I want read it in the message version and I wanna invite you to close your eyes and listen as if Jesus was speaking to you directly. Are you tired? Are you worn out? Are you burned out on religion? Come to me. Friends, may we learn that unforced rhythm of grace that comes from Jesus. May we learn how to slow down enough to catch up with God. We hope you found this message encouraging. If you would like to learn more about the Vine, get connected to our community, or contribute financially to the Vine's ministry, go to our website at thevineaustin.org.